Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are glad to bow before you this evening and glad to know that Christ Jesus is a king who reigns over all of his creation and that everything, everything created will bow before him. God, we look around us now and we often uh, see parts of the creation, rebellion. We see it in our own hearts at times, God, and uh, how easy it would be to think that this is um, describing something better than it is, and yet, God, it is reality. It's what is true, and everything will be brought into subjection to Him. And glad, God, as believers, we are among those who are glad to have already been brought into subjection and not under his foot, but brought into um, a relationship with the Almighty through cords of love, grace upon grace poured out upon us. Undeserved, God. But we thank you for the kindness that found us and that brought us to yourself. And God, we pray that you would continue to work in us and to bring about, bring it to completion, the, uh, the thing that you've begun. God, we pray that our hearts would be caught up more and more in love to Christ and um, captivated by the glorious realities of him and his gospel. Father, we pray that as we look again tonight into this little letter to the Philippians, that you would use it to stir our hearts to greater love and devotion to our King. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are still in Philippians 1, at least one more night. Um, and I'd like to read again from verse 21 down to the end of the chapter. Philippians 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Well, it's been three weeks since we were last in Philippians. And at that time, we looked at verses 27 through 30, 
kind of as a whole unit and what I thought was a quick look, you may have thought so. But uh, I'd like to back up a little bit tonight and look again at verse 27, that first phrase, because it is such a weighty phrase, such a momentous statement that he makes at the beginning of verse 27 when he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We talked about how this is a comprehensive statement and the rest of what he has to say in a sense feels that out, what it would look like for the Philippians, what Paul had in mind for the Philippians when he said that to them. But it is a comprehensive statement or a weighty statement. And so uh, I'd like to begin tonight by considering what is it that makes this statement so weighty and why, you know, why say that? Um, and there are a number of things that I think point to the fact that it is a weighty statement, as if all of Scripture is not. But, I mean, Paul is emphasizing this. So several things. One is the context in which we find it. Remember that verse 27 uh, changes directions. It begins a new paragraph in Paul's thinking and a new direction in the letter. In verses 12 through 26, he has explained what he's been dealing with. You know, the, the circumstances he finds himself in and how he's dealing with that and responding to it and how the Philippians should respond to that. He has explained what he expects might happen next, whether he's going to die or live and how he's dealing with that. But now in verse 27, he turns his attention to the Philippians and he addresses them and he instructs them. So he moves off of how he's doing and their concern for him to, you could say, his concern for the Philippians. A new direction. But the fact that it's a new paragraph and a new direction does not mean that we should forget everything that he's already said. It's not as if you know, it's completely disjointed from what he's said or what's gone before it. And especially what immediately goes before it. Where in verses 21 through 26, he talks about life and death and what, what might come next. You remember that he has stated that for him, death would be so much better. Because it would mean going to be with Jesus. It would be to be in his presence. And so he says, for me, that would be much better. Remember, he kind of stacks words way more better. But he goes on and says that he expected that he would continue to live. Because if you look at verse 24 and 25, it would be more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. The Philippians need something that, humanly speaking, no one is better fitted to provide to them than Paul. And it still would be the work of God. But Paul is God's instrument. And Paul believes, as he looks at the situation, he considers the call that God has placed upon him and his giftings, he believes that right now there's no one better suited to bring to the Philippians what they need than him. And because of that, he thinks God's going to let him live a little bit longer so that he can bear fruit among the Philippians. Now, if you heard that, if the Apostle Paul wrote to us and said, listen, you know, I'm in prison and I could be executed and really honestly death would be better for me. But, you know, there's something that you need. And I believe God would leave me here a little bit longer to give that to you. And then he says this, only this Philippians. Would you not say, what is it, Paul? What is the thing that you have to say to me? 
And so the context, I believe, puts a lot of weight on what he says next. He turns from that statement. I'm going to stay longer because it's necessary for you. Now, let me tell you this. So the context, I believe, argues for the fact that these words are weighty. Second, the emphasis that Paul himself places upon it. I mentioned three weeks ago. It's worth mentioning again. You know, he begins verse 27 with the word only. It's not that there's nothing else to say. It's that everything else he has to say can kind of be summarized in this statement. So here, get this. Only this, Philippians. Don't miss this. And so as he says this, following on the heels of what he's just said about life and death, only bears a lot of weight. Whatever happens to Paul, whether he lives or dies, he he thinks he's going to live, but whatever comes next, Philippians, only this. And then in verse 27, whether I, I remain absent or whether I get to come and see you, only this. Whether I'm there or not, it's not really important. Only this. And so he puts this before them as the thing here, Philippians, is the goal to aspire to as you live your life as a Christian in a place like Philippi. So it's weighty because of the context. It's weighty because of the emphasis that Paul places upon it. Third, it's weighty because it is a command that comes under divine authority. When Paul, in verse 27, turns his attention to the Philippians, he's not appealing to them. You know, I wish you'd do this. He's not offering them advice. I think it'd be wise if you took this direction. He's commanding them. Here is an imperative laid down, not from Paul personally in that sense, but Paul as the apostle of Jesus Christ. The ambassador, I'm speaking for God, Philippians, here's a command. A few weeks ago, my boys and I were out in the pasture trying to load a cow. And it was not working. It was not going well at all. And David said, hey, dad, I got an idea. And it was a pretty good idea. And so I listened to it and I thought, well, we'll try that because what we're doing is not working, right? And so we set up again and uh, we got most of the job done to get it all done. But we got more than we had before. And so uh, it worked pretty well. But I'd never thought for a moment David was commanding me. Here's what we're doing next. Go move it, you know, move those panels, move the truck. There are other times when he might say, hey, dad, I've got an idea. And I listen to it and I'm like, no, not going to (laughs) work. You know, experience and age tells me that's not going to work. We're not doing that. And I don't think he thinks like, dad, that was a command. You're supposed to do what I tell you. But I'm saying to you tonight that when Paul says this to the Philippians, he's not saying age and experience have taught me this and I think this would work and you ought to try it. It'd be a great idea. Why don't you you try it? No. Paul is binding the consciences of the Philippians with words from God. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And he lays upon them an obligation that is not, it's not a, a, uh, you know, a choice that they can make or not make and be in obedience to God. He's laying upon them a command. And if you want to walk in obedience to your king, Philippians, do this. The command is one that is, uh, is continuous. The language is, is continuous. He's, he's not directing them to a one-time duty. But they're to live a life of conduct that is pleasing or, or, or worthy of the gospel. And it is not only perpetual for the Philippians, but... God's recorded it here for us. It's a perpetual command for us. We don't get to pick and choose which days we'll obey this command. We're always to obey this command. By the way, when you hear that that is a command and that God commands you, how does your heart respond to that? Do you hear... God commanding you and does resentment rise up in you? Or do you hear God commands you and you gladly bow before Him and consider it must be good for me because God commanded it? Surely it says a lot about where your heart is by how your heart responds to the commands of God when they come to us. Paul sets this before the Philippians not as an onerous duty, but as something really good for them, something that should really be their delight and ours. But the statement is a weighty statement because it is a divine command. As Paul says this, makes this statement, the words that he use, uses uh, portray vivid imagery. I don't want to, to rehash this all again, but I just remind you that um, you know, words can paint a picture. And he, he expresses himself with a word that gives the idea of conducting yourself as a citizen. Not just how you conduct your, your life, but particularly as a citizen. Here are these people who live in a colony of Rome, way away from Rome, surrounded by cities that are not colonies of Rome and so they're in kind of an envious position and they understand that there are privileges that come with being a citizen and so Paul writes to them conduct yourself like a citizen but not a citizen of Rome a citizen of the gospel of Christ conduct yourself like that one more it's weighty because of what's on the other side of the statement. And what I mean by that is this. Again, verse 27, that first part of it. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. When Paul speaks of conducting yourself in a manner worthy. Remember the word worthy is one that conveys the idea of, of living in a way that's appropriate to something. To what's fitting or consistent with something. And the picture talking about vivid language, the picture is that of a, a scale, you know, the balance. And so your life is on one side of this balance and what's on the other side was well, the gospel. But the measure 
of how hit, you know, weighty this statement is about how you should conduct yourself really somewhat is dependent upon what you put on this side over here. You could say conduct yourself, you know, in a lot of different ways. And, and depending on what you put over here, it's going to say something about how you conduct yourself on this side. But what Paul puts there is not, again, not Roman citizenship. What he puts there is not, um, you know, something light. It is the gospel. I was thinking this after, or this over the past week or so, and also this afternoon, about um, going to work for a company that has a lousy reputation. I hope you haven't worked for that company, but just a terrible reputation. Maybe you don't realize it until you get there, and then you realize, oh, wow, what did I do, you know? Well, you don't have to work very hard to uphold the reputation of that company, do you? Uh, you'd have to really mess up to hurt the reputation of that company. If, if their reputation is for, for bad dealing and broken contracts and you know just bad faith in the community, then it doesn't take much. But if you go to work for a company that has a stellar reputation, they're going to expect you to work and to deal with people in a way that reflects on the reputation of the company. Because if you don't, you can hurt the reputation of the company. They have expectations. I, most of us probably at some time or another have had teachers that didn't expect very much of us. And maybe you had other teachers that held you to a very high standard. They expected a lot. And if you've had both of those, you know which ones you probably learned the most under. High expectations, high standards. Well, again, Paul doesn't just put on the one side, you know, a company with a stellar reputation or uh, high academic expectations, but it is the gospel. And the fact that it's the gospel on the other side, it says something about what he means when he says that you're to conduct yourself as a citizen in a manner worthy. Worthy of what, Paul? Worthy of the gospel. And so with that in mind, I want to point out three things about the gospel. And there are so many things that could be said, but three things tonight. As we seek to obey this command, what does it mean to live, to conduct ourselves as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel? And the first is that the gospel is the measure. We're kind of already hitting that, but I want to say it again. The gospel is that which we're measuring against. What does it mean to live in a manner worthy? Well, worthy of the gospel. And we can't lose sight of that. When you consider how you should live as a Christian, you must take into account the gospel. Now, I'm not dismissing the law and what we've been looking at on Sunday mornings. I don't mean that at all. But for the Christian, even our view of the law has been shaped by the gospel. How you saw the law outside of Christ was probably very different than how you now see the law if you are in Christ. The gospel has changed how you see everything and your relationship to everything. Your relationship to the law has changed as well as your relationship to God. So having been changed by the gospel, it's that gospel that Paul sets before us here as the measure 
of what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Also, when I say the gospel, I don't mean something separate from God. It is the gospel of God. And here in Philippians, it's the gospel of Christ. It's the good news concerning Christ and what he has done. So we're not separating, you know, the gospel is kind of a separate thing away from God. It is, it is the good news about Christ. The law certainly tells us something about the character of God. But it is in the gospel that we see his mercy. And it is in the gospel that we see his intention to save. Now you can think of so many passages, but uh, in Matthew, when the angel appears to Joseph and tells him that Mary is going to have a child, the angel says to him, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Right there, the intention is declared. He's sending his son who will save his people from their sins. And it's there in this gospel that we see this intention carried out. And it's in the gospel that we are convinced of his love. So many passages again, but Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love not just expressed or, or, or spoken, but here demonstrated. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Titus 3.5, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by, by the Holy Spirit. God has expressed his intention to save. He's convinced us of his love toward us through actually bringing, sending Christ and accomplishing salvation and then coming and working in our hearts to bring us to himself. And in all of that, there's reason for so much joy. It's the work of God. It's the salvation of God. He rescues sinners. He brings us to himself. He puts away our sin. He makes us alive to God. It is reason for joy. and You shouldn't really be able to stop and think on these things and think about them aright and not experience some sense of joy. Have you received this gospel? Well, if you have, what Paul is saying to the Philippians is let your life express this reality. Live as citizens a life that's worthy of this gospel. Let your life reflect. Let it be appropriate to the gospel. It's the gospel that secures our right relationship with God. Before the gospel, we were people who were enslaved to sin. Not only corrupted by sin and made filthy by sin, but also under the power of sin. In the grip of sin, we were alienated from God and really alienated from others. But God, through the gospel of Christ, removes the curse of the law from us. And he puts it on his own son to bear for us. He carries the guilt of our sin, forgiving us. 
He cleanses us. He frees us. And it's this gospel, this good news about Jesus and all that He has done to do helpless sinners good that Paul lays on the scales on the other side when he says, conduct yourself, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. The gospel, though, is not only the measure that that sits on this side of the scales. The gospel is also the motivation. The gospel is so glorious and so wonderful, we could despair of ever heeding Paul's words. Paul says, do this. And we think, how do you do that? How do you live a life worthy of that? How can you ever measure up? But the gospel is not only the yardstick, it's also, in a sense, the carrot, if you will. It sits before us and it beckons us and calls us. Run. Live. Pursue holiness. How wonderful it is that what Paul puts on the other side is the gospel. I was mentioning a moment ago about going to work for a a company with a stellar reputation. Um, If you try to do that, They're probably going to run background checks, check references, and they want to hire people with a stellar reputation. They're not looking for someone who has a bad reputation to come and represent them. Well, here's the gospel, and it has a stellar reputation. But it doesn't seek out people with stellar reputations because as the gospel looks out, there are none. The gospel comes to people with wretched reputations, sinners, alienated from God, people who bear the the weight and the guilt and the filth of their sin. The gospel comes to them and it takes those people with wretched reputations and it transforms them and makes them new. At work, your failure to reflect well upon the company's reputation may get you fired. You can belong to some organization and you don't uphold the standards of that organization and they may kick you out. You can't be a part of our club anymore. But while the command to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is a serious command... God issues the command knowing all of your failures ahead of ever calling you to himself. He's not surprised by any of them. But more than that, we sin and we turn to God in repentance. We find love and forgiveness, acceptance and reconciliation. Because what's on the other side isn't the thunderings of the law. What's on the other side is the gospel. Live A life worthy of that. It is a measure. It's a standard against which we measure our lives and our responses. But it's also the pearl of great price for which we gladly sell everything that we might have it. It calls to us. It beckons to us. 
We fail and we look and we see again the wonderful grace of God and we're called to get up and pursue once again what Paul says in Philippians 3.14 is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Get up and run. Seeing how God loves you. Seeing His grace extended to you again and again and again. Does it not stir you to holy living? God, I want to live pleasing to you. Well, the gospel is the measure. It's the motivation, but it is also the means. In the gospel, God does not only express his love, demonstrate it. He doesn't just bring us to a a state of neutrality by removing the thundering of the law. So, you know, this is not hanging over us anymore. But he also brings us to himself, removing us from one camp and placing us into another. Colossians says it this way in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In the gospel, God has removed us from from Adam's representation, the first Adam. And he's placed us in the last Adam. He has united us to Christ. Paul expresses this in Romans 5, 12, where he he speaks of of Adam in verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But then in verse 17, he says, For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Death came through Adam, but life comes through Jesus Christ. If Adam is still your representative, then yes, you're under the sentence of death. But if Christ is your representative, if you've been united to him, then life. And Paul goes on to argue in Romans 6, That if we're united to Jesus Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. In verse 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And it's on the basis of our being united with Christ in his death and being raised with him to newness of life, that Paul then moves in verses 11 and 12 of Romans 6 to say, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Paul is arguing, though you have not yet been removed from the presence of sin, If you're in Christ Jesus, you have been released from the power of sin by the gospel of Christ Jesus, which brings about this union with him. So the gospel is the measure for a life lived in a worthy manner, and it's 
the motive for living in a worthy manner, but it's also, it provides the means to live that life. When the command comes in Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You are not being set up for failure. God is not demanding from you something that He is not also providing for you. Yes, it's impossible in your own strength, but it's not impossible in Christ Jesus. So don't look at the command or hear the command with a kind of dread that expects to fall short and says, I can never do that. Rather, see the command as words of love. The Almighty calls you to live in light of the grace that's been poured out on you. And when you fail, grace still abounds. It's the gospel that's on one side of those scales. What's on the other? Well, you are, Christian. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. You are. A person might ask, which part of me? All of you. Every part of your life. You don't get to draw lines and say, I'm going to really try to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in this area, but there's also this area over here and not so much there, right? So where you go, wherever you go, can you go there as you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? What you look at. You do understand when you sit down at the TV or at the computer, God doesn't distance himself and absent himself from you. He's right there. How wonderful it would be if the Holy Spirit would whisper in our ear. Then only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. When you open your mouth to speak at church or at home, at Walmart, <laughs> wherever else, what do you think about when you lay down to go to sleep or in a quiet moment? What you love. All of that. Has to come under. This command. You. Only conduct yourself. In a manner worthy. Of the gospel. Of Christ. This is, we could say, a call to live for Jesus rather than to live for self. If your conduct is shaped by concern for your own reputation or ease or promotion or whatever else, then how you conduct yourself will be different than it will be if it's shaped by concern 
with living as a citizen who's been won by the gospel of Christ. If what you're concerned about is how your life reflects upon that gospel, you're going to live differently than if you're really concerned mostly about how life reflects upon me and what people think about me. I've used as an example tonight several times an employee unless this employee is living under the light of Philippians 127 the employee cares about his reputation and his company's reputation because of love for self don't want to lose my job don't want people to think badly of me. I want to do well. I want to be promoted. But the Christian conducts himself in a manner worthy of the gospel for love of Jesus. Remember, this has nothing to do with earning salvation. Paul's not taking this like a stick and saying, you've got to work hard so God loves you. He's writing to Christians, Philippians 1, the saints who are in Christ in Philippi. These are people who already belong to Jesus. They've already found salvation. And what's on the other side, remember, is the gospel. Paul's just saying, since you have been won by the gospel, live like it. Live in a way that reflects that. Live so that other people looking see that you have been changed by something. When people look at you, what is their impression of the gospel? Probably some of us, most of us would have to say, well, sometimes it's, it's good, but there are times when it's not so good. The people who were looking at Paul could get a good impression of the gospel, even his detractors. You remember from the earlier part of the, of the chapter, he's chained to a guard 24 hours a day. And he says that many people in Caesar's household have come to understand that he's a prisoner because of Christ. In those terrible circumstances that he's dealing with, people looking at Paul have come to the conclusion that they have a good impression of the gospel. Paul is in chains because of the gospel. Now may God help us in our good moments and in our worst moments to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Christ.